Has anybody ever, and raise your hand if you've done this, if you've ever been to Ancestry.com or in some way looked up your family's genealogy and lineage? How many of us have done that? Like about half of us in the room. I haven't personally, my mom has, and so I know a lot about our ancestry through that. Lots of fascinating stuff you can find doing that. I saw a man on TV once uh, who was actually able to trace his heritage all the way back to the particular place in Africa that he was from and to fly there and meet some of his very distant family members. He was an African-American man, now a very influential celebrity. Uh, and until then, all he knew about his heritage was that there was slavery in his ancestry. He was a descendant of slaves. He knew maybe on what plantations, but didn't know much more than that. But through that type of research and through modern DNA testing, he was able to figure out not only the whole line and trace it all the way back, but figure out from what parts of Africa his ancestors were kidnapped from, was able to fly there and then meet those distant relatives, see their heritage, learn about their culture, and know so much more than he had previously known about where he came from. Can you imagine how much that would change your perspective to mentally go from, I'm a descendant of men who were slaves to other men, to I'm a descendant of this tribe in Africa. That would change so much of your mentality. And most of us are not equipped really to even appreciate how much that would change someone's mentality. But I do know from the little information that I have about my own ancestors, I noticed that changing my thinking as well. For instance, I know that my own ancestors came from Scandinavia across the Atlantic. They settled in the harbors of Canada and then took a train out to the plains of Saskatchewan, which is north of Montana, if you want to think about cold. And they farmed and lived up there on those plains in the Canadian Midwest out there. For many generations, several of them died, several of them lived. Uh, and then after World War II, my grandfather moved from there down to Florida, where he pursued a degree in music education from Florida State, met my grandmother, and then moved to my hometown, where I'm from and where my parents are from as well. I can't look at immigration the same way because I see in modern immigrants my own ancestors because I know just when they came over. Uh, and I think sometimes about the fact that my grandfather was a music educator and I believe he had a doctorate in music education uh, and how much of my own life revolves around singing God's word and now teaching God's word and seeing that legacy live on in what I do. That changes how I think, that's my point. Knowing what I know about my ancestors changes how I look at myself and I bet what you know about your ancestors changes how you look at yourself and your story as well. Well, here in the States, each of us have such different ancestries that it's a very personal thing. Mine tells me about me, and I've told you about mine, and you know a little more about me now. Your lineage tells you about you, but that's because we don't share much of the same family history. Israel was different from us in that way. Uh, Israel all shared one family history. So it was not an individual thing, it was a corporate thing. They would look at their ancestries and say, this tells us about us. So they learned about themselves through it, but they learned about the whole community through it, not in the personal way that we do here. Uh, and the way that kind of boils down for us is today we're going to be looking at one of those genealogies that Israel used to learn about themselves and we will learn about ourselves as well. To give you an idea how this would look, uh, for them to look at those records would be like us looking up not only our own family heritage like some of us have done, uh, but also thinking about some of the spiritual greats in Christianity that went before us like Jim Elliot and Martin Luther and some of the great heroes of the faith. 
as well as the way that we as Americans kind of look at our founding fathers. It was their national heritage as well. So the way that we look at men like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, that's kind of how they looked at that. And then add to that the way that we as the people of Calvary Baptist look at our past leaders as part of our story. Pastor Toby and Pastor Tanner and Pastor James and the way that they led us and that's part of our story. You roll all of that into one and now we're getting a little bit of a picture of how Israel looked at their genealogy. They learned about their nation, they learned about their religion and about who they were from those things. Now, what I pray happens for us this morning as we look at one is that we learn a little bit about ourselves because we are their spiritual heirs. These are our spiritual ancestors before us. They learned about themselves, so we're going to learn about who we are as the people of God. Just a couple of particular things about who we are. Uh, so if you follow Jesus, I pray that that helps you to follow him more faithfully. And if you don't follow Jesus, I think this is really important to you because it can show you a little bit about what it means to follow Jesus. You've probably got all kinds of pictures about what Christianity is and what it isn't. Well, we'll see here a few very particular truths about what it would mean to follow Jesus. And I pray the Lord uses that to call you to indeed become a Christian and follow him. Let's look together at Genesis chapter 5, which is on page three of your pew Bibles and it goes into page four. We'll turn to Genesis chapter five and we're going to read the whole thing this morning. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and he blessed them and named them man in the day that they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and he named him Seth. And the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Seth lived 105 years, and he became the father of Enosh. And then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all of the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Enosh lived 90 years and became the father of Kenan. Then Enosh lived 815 years after he became the father of Kenan, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Kenan lived 75 years, and he became the father of Mahalalel. And then Kenan lived 840 years after he became the father of Mahalalel, and he had other sons and daughters. And so all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Mahalalel lived 65 years, and he became the father of Jared. And then Mahalalel lived 830 years after he became the father of Jared, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and then he died. Jared lived 162 years and became the father of Enoch. Then Jared lived 800 years after he became the father of Enoch, and he had other sons and daughters. And so all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Enoch lived for 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God for 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. And so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Methuselah lived 187 years and became the father of Lamech. And then Methuselah lived 782 years after he became the father of Lamech. And he had other sons and daughters, so all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and then he died. <laughs> 
Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us great rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. And then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah and had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. Noah was 500 years old and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The word of the Lord. This is then the story of how we get from Adam to Noah, bridges the gap between Adam's story and Noah's story that we will one day read. And Paul writes to Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed and that all scripture is useful for our lives. And so that means even a piece of scripture like this that we look at and perhaps struggle to find meaning for our lives, we can look at it with faith and say, all scripture is God-breathed and all scripture is useful. Even a genealogy has meaning for our lives. And so here at Calvary, if you're new here, our habit is to walk through books of the Bible, starting at the beginning of that book and ending at the end of that book. And when we come to a passage like this, that seems like it would be tough to find meaning in, or maybe other passages that are a little embarrassing or tough, uh, we don't shy away from them. We perk up our ears and we listen and we say, God, what do you want to say to us through this passage? That's what we're doing today. And that's why we would stop and preach through a genealogy. Uh, this one does at least two things for you. First, it is a reminder that God's words are real for every generation. And then second, it tells a little bit about who we are as the people of God, particularly two very great gifts that God gives to his people. So first, let's talk then about how this little genealogical record makes God's truths real for every generation. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to walk back to Genesis 1 through 3. We're going to talk about a few principles we see in Genesis 1 through 3. Then we're going to flip back up here to Genesis 5 and see them come true for every generation. So first, if you've got your Bibles open, flip just a page or two back to Genesis 2, chapter 7. We're going to pull from this verse just one simple principle that God is the one who gives life. Genesis 2, 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Probably easy to see the picture there, right? We were not alive, God made us alive. Who gives life then? It is the Lord himself who gives life. So that's the first principle we're pulling there. Okay, now let's move to Genesis 1.28. We've seen that God gives life. Now we're going to see that God also gives us the ability to multiply, the ability to make babies and make another generation that comes after us. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now there's a lot there, but I want to focus on that one blessing. God says, be fruitful and multiply. And in saying that, he gives to us the ability to multiply and create generations that come after us, the ability to bear children as we still do today. So that's one and two. God gives us life. God gives us the ability to bear children and coming generations. Now we'll look at number three in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. What we're going to see here is that while the Lord gives life, he also takes it away. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die." 
And if you know the rest of that story, we do indeed go and eat from that tree that we are forbidden to eat from, and we do indeed die. So you have three truths there. God gives life, God gives us the ability to multiply, and God takes life away. Let's flip back now to Genesis 5, and we're going to see that happen to nearly every generation in this record. If you were to just look at verse 6, the the record there of Seth that starts in verse 6, you're going to see that pattern. Seth lives for 105 years because God gives him the breath of life. And then he fathers Enosh. Well, why would he be able to father Enosh? Well, because God said, be fruitful and multiply. God gives him that ability to be fruitful and to multiply. And then he lives more years after that because God gives more life. And then he dies because God said, if we ate from that tree, we would surely die. And we ate from that tree. So do you see the pattern? We live, we're able to multiply and we die. Every generation, this goes on. And with every round of it, it is like a pounding rhythm that says the things that God said would happen, happen. They come true in every generation over and over again. And they remain true as the generations pass. And so the rhythm sounds, he lived, he fathered, he lived, he died. He lived, he fathered, he lived. He died. God gives life. God lets us multiply. God gives more life. God takes life. God gives life. God lets us multiply. God gives more life. God takes life. And this pattern goes over and over to say, my truths are true for every generation. It does not change as the line goes down, but what God says will be, will continue to be. And so it's one thing then to read in chapters one through three that those three things are true. It's one thing to look at and say, yes, that is true. It is another thing to see it come real for every generation. And it still comes real to every generation today. Uh, And that's the difference that we're seeing here. The big truths of life, they come true for every generation. With each round, let it be a reminder that what God says is true is true for you in your life, in your generation. He says, he gave you the breath in your lungs. That's true for your generation. That's true for you. The Lord gives you the breath of life. He says that he is holy and he is worthy of all of your worship. That is true for your generation. That didn't stop in the generation before you. That is true for your generation. And that is true for you as well. He is worthy of every moment of your worship. He says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is true for your generation. Everyone in your generation has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it is true for you too. You have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We live that out in our everyday lives when we do bad things even though we sometimes don't even want to. He says that it is appointed for everyone to die once and after this comes judgment. And that is true for your generation. And that is true for you personally. We will all die. Everyone in this generation and room will one day if the Lord doesn't come back first. And when we do, we will stand before God and we will answer for all the good and bad that we have done. It's true for you. It's true for your generation. He says, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He says that through faith in Jesus Christ, 
that coming day of judgment, you don't have to be afraid of it. You can have instead eternal life. And that is true for your generation. That didn't stop in the generation before you. That's true for you and for your generation because he says that he paid for your sin by dying in your place. And that is true for your generation and true for you. He offered up his own body on the cross as payment, not just for the sins of the whole world, not just for the sins of the generation before you, but for you, so that you could walk with him. And when he says, come and follow me, he says it to you and to your generation. Come and follow me. So as we see these truths become personal for every person in this generation, we gotta take it personally for ourselves too. The truths of God are true in every generation and they are true for every person. They are true for me. So that is how the genealogy shows that God's words are true for every generation across time. Let's turn then to look at two things that are really peculiar about this genealogy that tell us a little bit about who we are as the people of God. Now, the story here is that there was another genealogy before this. It was the line of Cain, and we saw how wicked that line became. They started doing terrible things, and one guy starts taunting his wives because he has two wives and getting violent toward them. They got terrible. Uh, but then we see this line, and this is put forward as basically the good guys. These are the holy line. So before, when the story was left off at the end of chapter 4, things had gotten pretty bad in the world. And when we pick up in the next chapter, we're going to find they're even worse on the back end of this. But you have this holy line traced through in contrast, as if to say, these guys are the good guys. These are, these are the people of God throughout these generations. And so anything peculiar about them is a hint at some aspect of what it means to follow God or what it means to be God's people. And you might have noticed a couple of peculiar things about these guys, things that don't show up in other genealogies. First, did you notice how long they live? That's strange, isn't it? Uh, they approach a thousand years. They never quite hit it. 962 years, 912 years, 895 years. What on earth is going on there, right? And you might think that it's fanciful or something like that, but you got to remember Moses wrote this in the desert when people didn't live that long anymore. It probably sounded as weird to the original readers as it sounds to us. And we look back on it and say, this is God-inspired word, so we believe these people really lived for this long. And so we look for meaning in it. What could it mean? Why would it be documented that the holy guys, like the good guys, live this long, but in the genealogy that just happened before with Cain, there's no record of how long they live. Like it's not pointed out that those guys live for a long time. Just these guys. What could be going on there? Well, I think you can find the meaning of it in several commands that Moses issues. I won't ask you to turn there because we'll be flipping around a lot. We'll try to put them on the screens for you. But consider some of these words that the same author writes when he starts writing Israel's law. In Exodus 20, he says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Did you hear that? So that your days may be prolonged in the land, if you honor your father and mother. In Deuteronomy 5, he says, You shall walk in all the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live, and it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. You see the connection? Follow God's ways, and when you go in this land, you will live a long time. Deuteronomy 11 says, You shall therefore keep every commandment which I am commanding you today, 
so that you may be strong and go in and possess the land which you are about to cross and possess it so that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swore to give your fathers to give them and to their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. And finally in Deuteronomy 22, he says it again. If you happen to come upon a bird's nest along the ways in any tree or on the ground with the young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall certainly let the mother go. But the young you may take for yourself in order that it may be well with you and you may prolong your days. You see this theme in the law? He's laying it down for Israel. You are my people. If you follow in my ways, I will prolong your years and give you longer life. Now, later on in the wisdom of the Proverbs, it says a very similar thing. And it's more common sense, I think. You, do, you walk in wisdom and you're going to live longer. It's kind of like if you exercise and eat right, you're going to live for longer. It's just kind of the way the world works. Well, Proverbs 3 says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. If you diligently search for the Bible's wisdom and walk in it, it'll add years to your life. Can you believe that? In chapter 9, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For me, your days will be multiplied, and years of life will be added to you. You're probably starting to catch the theme. We, when we seek out God's ways, when His people walk in His ways, He's inclined to prolong our lives. He actually likes to give long life to the people that follow Him. Can you believe that he would do such an amazing thing? And just in case you think this is just an Old Testament thing and you like only want to listen to the New Testament, I'll just give you one New Testament. It's in the New Testament also. Ephesians 6 quotes the Exodus verse that I quoted a minute ago. And it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So Paul is quoting this to Christians, saying, follow this way. And even as Christians, this is true for you. It's true for God's people in every era. Now, you've got to remember here, Genesis communicates subtly. It's a masterfully written book. And sometimes you can't be sure if it's really saying something. You look at this and be like, okay, these guys lived a long time. They were good guys. Am I reading too much into this here? Like, what's going on? And so what you have to do, you have to do two things. You have to look and say, okay, is it really saying this, first of all, or am I adding to it? No, it really says that. I mean, it's striking how long these guys live. And secondly, is it repeated as a principle elsewhere in the Bible? In this case, we just saw it really is. When you walk in God's ways, he prolongs your life. He tends to give long life to the people that follow his ways. Uh, so there we have it, just a profound principle about walking with Jesus. He can actually prolong your years. Now, there are many people who would take that and distort it. And so I have to stop and I have to kind of confront what some other people have said about similar things. Uh, there is uh, just a few things we got to talk about. First, you got to see this is a generalization. There's not a formula here, right? It's not like you can take your deeds and put them into the algorithm and figure out how many years you have left or some, just some kind of crazy thing like that, which sounds very fanciful, but there are preachers out there who will say that if you are coming to Jesus and asking him for long life or healing from some ailment or enough money to pay your bills and he doesn't give it to you, then that is an indication that you either lack faith or you're not thinking positively enough or you're not giving enough money. There are preachers who would get up in their pulpits and say that. 
And you can see how destructive that would be. It would just move people to try to give more money to those ministries just to try to obtain the thing that they want because it's some kind of formula that can be manipulated. Well, God's not a formula. God is a person who's got a personality. And so this is a character attribute we're talking about that he likes to give long life to his people when they follow his ways. It's not something we can manipulate and somehow calculate. I think I'm gonna get 10 more years because I did this good thing or gave this one gift. It does not work that way. Uh, what it does mean though, is that however many years you've been given, they were a gift from God. God gave you those gifts, those years, every breath of them. And some of you in this room have a whole lot of years that you can look back on. And many of those years are righteous years when you walked in God's ways and you still walk in those ways today. And so it does mean that some measure of God's kindness to you, if he's given you a lot of years, is because of the time you have spent carefully searching his ways and walking in his ways. It's a blessing that he has given to you in response. So one thing it's not saying is that this is some kind of formula to be manipulated or in any, anything like that. Notice also that we are not coming to Jesus to get long life, right? That's not the goal. We don't come to Jesus and say, I want whatever this thing is, and so Jesus, I come to you. Uh, now these other preachers that I'm talking about, they're called prosperity gospel preachers, and the way that their kind of thing works is whatever the thing is you want, you know, your bills paid, healing, long life, he emotional healing from abuse, whatever it is, uh, come to Jesus, and if you have enough faith and give us enough money, Jesus would give it to you. That's basically the formula that they're putting in front of people. Uh, now notice there, what's the goal in the whole thing? The goal isn't Jesus, the goal is getting the thing you want, right? And Jesus is just the means to the end. So what they're really going after is that healing or that money or that other thing. That's the full God in that gospel because that's what we're seeking after. We're preaching something different here. The message of the Bible says that yes, Jesus is the means to all blessing. Every blessing in the heavenly realms has been given to us through him, but he's not just the means, he's the end too. We don't come to Jesus to get long life. We don't come to Jesus to get money. We usually give up our money because of him. We don't come to him to get healing. Sometimes we get that. Those are all side benefits if we get them. We come to Jesus to get Jesus because the best thing about the gospel is we get communion with him. So the prosperity gospel would say you can have all the world if you come to Jesus and Christianity quotes the old song and says, no, you can have all this world. Give me Jesus. Jesus is the one that we want. And in fact, that's actually the second blessing that this genealogy points to. Segues perfectly. Uh, what this record does is it puts forward communion with God as the good life, as the thing that you want. I wonder if when we read through it earlier, if Enoch stuck out to you. I wonder if you read that and said, wait a minute, he walked with God. The other ones didn't walk. Wait a minute, he didn't even die. What was going on there? That sticks out as the exception, the really good one that we want to be. Let's look at verses 21 and 24, kind of mind that and see what gold we can come out with. This is the story of Enoch. Enoch lived 65 years and he became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God for 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. What a, what a crazy thing. Like, if the long life isn't crazy enough, this guy doesn't even die. Like, God just 
goes on and walks with him and, and takes him home. It's amazing. So, so you've got nine men who live anywhere from 777 years to 969 years, and then they die. And then you've got this one man who lives a mere 365 years, but he gets to walk with God for those years. And then he doesn't even die because God takes him home. Which one do you want to be? You want to be one of the guys that gets to live almost a thousand years, but not any close particular communion with God? Or would you rather have 365 years walking with the Lord on the earth and then get to go home and be with him when it's over rather than die? So even in this passage, long life isn't put forward as the best thing of Christianity. It's communion with God. It's getting to walk with God that's put forward as the very best of Christianity. This is, by the way, the first picture that we get of the righteous life in the Bible. The first picture we have of what today we would call the Christian life in the Bible. Uh, last week we talked about the first picture of religion altogether in the Bible, those sacrifices that were offered, and then the phrase, and then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, but this is the first picture of the everyday life of a religious person. And how does the Bible choose to set the tone for what it means to be a follower of the Lord, what it means to be one of the good guys or whatever this good religion that's going to develop is? How do we describe it? As cold rule following? No, as walking with God. It's not Enoch kept all the rules and he didn't like it very much, but at least he didn't get smited. That's not God's first picture of religion. No, Enoch had sweet fellowship walking along the way with God. There's two things that are really important about walking that I think we need to know to understand what this means. First, uh, some of you are probably wearing Fitbit bracelets or anklets, maybe they even make right now. And uh, you should know that those, the numbers on those are going back to the mothership and they do all kinds of research on that. And we know that the average person walks 7,000 steps a day in the wintertime and 8,000 steps in the summertime. Uh, thanks to you guys that are wearing those bracelets and walking around with those things. Uh, point is, that's a whole lot of steps, right? And I was just talking to a woman this week whose doctor asked her to stay off of her foot for a while. And she said she just looked at him and said, well, how am I going to do that? Like, how's that get like? I can't get up and cook. I can't do laundry. I can't walk to the mailbox. I can't do anything if I can't get up and walk. It just makes you thank God for wheelchairs and inventions like that for those of us that need them. Uh, the point is, much of life is walking. When we're done, I think we're all going to get up and walk out of here, walk to our cars. You just walk all the time. You do it constantly. And that's part of the image that I think the Lord wants to put forth here in communion with God. Enoch just walked with him constantly, all the time. It was just part of his life. It was like breathing almost in the background, but not really in the background, but just you don't have to think about it consciously because you are always doing it the way that that one person is just constantly praying. Yes, sometimes having to remind themselves to pray, but just naturally always praying the way that I'm just walking around here and not even thinking about it right now, just part of your life. The other important thing is that when you walk with somebody, you are giving up a certain aspect of, you know, the destination you want to get to, the speed that you want to go when you get there, the, you want to go your own way as you go there. If you get to walk on your own, get whatever pace you want to, whatever route you want to, go to the place you're going, you don't have to worry about other people. If you want to walk with somebody else, that's a different game. Now, now you've got to walk in sync with each other. You can't, can't outrun each other. And you're agreeing on a place. And even subconsciously, you're agreeing on a route because that other person now means more to you than the direction and the path and all the other things. 
In our house, uh, we try to go for walks around the block. We're a family of six, uh, and it is so much work to keep us together. I mean, so uh, on the one hand, Emily and I have very different paces for walking. You, you may think watching me walk around here that I'm the fast one in our marriage, but no, no, no. I am not the fast one in our marriage. And so I'm trying to keep up with her when we're going walking. So there's enough tension right there to try to like join our paces. Never mind that we've got usually three kids now on bicycles and it's like a pod race. They just take off and choo, they're gone just down the sidewalk. And then there's little Anna who's three and is still kind of getting her, her footing well. And, uh, you know, sometimes just kind of takes her time and walks as quickly as she wants to walk. So between all of this, like the kids on bikes have to rush down to the end of the sidewalk and then they have to turn around and come back and then they go forward again and then they come back. It's the only way that we can stay together. All of us that are walking have to intentionally walk the same pace. The kids are constantly asking, oh, can we go over here and go to this park? Are we turning left, right? Where are we going? We all have to work so much to stay on the same page, to communicate with each other, walk the same pace, but it's so worth it. That's so much more fun than going for a walk by yourself. Why? Because those people that we're with mean more than just getting to walk around the block and winding up at the same place you were at. Well, there's some similarity with that and with walking with Jesus. Uh, all of a sudden, the direction you're going this day matters less to you. The pace that you're going at, it's not all about where you wanna go and how fast you wanna get there and how you want to get there. Now you're walking in step with somebody else and saying, you know what? It's so much better to get to walk with this person that I love. So the picture we have of religion, the very first one in the Bible, is not one of cold rule following. Uh, it's not anything else but sweet fellowship with Jesus Christ. That's what this is built around. And we can't take it for granted. The Lord walked in his garden, right? He walked and Adam heard the sound of the Lord coming in his garden and walking, he heard the footsteps and when we sinned against the Lord, we were cast out of that garden. We, we've been kicked out of the place where God goes for walks. And now, all of a sudden, we have this picture of this person who gets to still walk with God. How could he walk? I mean, we can't go back into the place where God walks. How, how does that happen? Well, the only way that can happen is if God comes to Enoch. Enoch can't go to God. It's guarded with a flaming sword. So God has to come to Enoch. And they walk together. That's amazing. That means that God seeks out the people that seek him and he walks with us. He would do the same thing when he would come to earth and be born of a virgin and walk upon the earth with his disciples. Not because they came all the way up to heaven to him, but because he came down to them and they got to walk with him. Christian, God seeks you out. You can think that you are not holy enough to get to walk with him. And you can look at that beautiful Garden of Eden where he once dwelled and say, I could never get in that place. I am not holy enough, but I've got good news for you. God walks out of that garden and he comes to you and he walks with sinners. That is good, good news. And that's the best part about following Jesus. We get Jesus himself because he comes to us. One day he's going to bring us home the same way that he brought Enoch home. Uh, but until then, we get to celebrate sweet communion with him. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to switch images from a walk with God to sitting down at God's table and having a meal with him. 
another image of sweet fellowship that we have with him. I want to ask our deacons to come forward and to help us as we have this supper together. This is a feast that we call the Lord's Supper, and if you're new with us, I'll explain it to you. We do this once a month. The Lord told us to do it in the scriptures. And what we do here is we remember that the Lord himself, Jesus himself, died for us to pay for our sins. His body was torn as he was crucified for us and his blood was shed for us. We receive that in grace saying, we are not holy enough to go before the Lord, but he has come to us, he has offered himself and we receive him in grace.